Let me ask you a question as we get ready. We are entering into the Christmas season, and maybe your answer is what we just sang. But I just wonder, what is your favorite Christmas hymn or carol or song? And let's, let's do this for the sake of where we are and for the sake of what we're doing. Like you may love Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, but let's not use that one in this place. All right, You can whisper that to your friend or last Christmas I gave you my heart, whatever it is. What's your favorite Christmas hymn? Somebody yell it out to me. Twelve days of Christmas, all right? Silent night, we got that one, good. Oh, holy night, do you hear what I hear? Heard that somewhere. Mary, did you know? Anybody else got one? God rest ye merry gentlemen, right? What's that? Oh, holy night, right? Man, it's good music around this time of year. I love, I'm, I'm one of those people. And you may not be, but you're wrong. I'm one of those people that I start Christmas music Friday after Thanksgiving, right? You may think that's too early. Some of people are December 1st. And some of you started playing Christmas music when Cracker Barrel put out their decorations in July. But I am a day after Thanksgiving, and I love it every year, that switch over to Christmas music in the car and driving around. And there is a hymn that when I was a child, I didn't quite like or understand that as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate more and more and more. And it's a hymn that has the title of what we're going to do over the next four weeks. And it's simply this. What child is this? On Mary's lap. Because that is the ultimate question that every individual must answer. Who is this that we celebrate at Christmas? What child is this? It's not a new question. It's been asked for centuries. It's been asked even more recent than that. Back in the late 80s, Time Magazine's cover at this time of year was, Who was Jesus? And it takes all of these pictures that people have made of him and puts them into a conglomeration. And in the midst of that, the writer asks, How is Jesus to be understood? Did he stride out of the wilderness 2,000 years ago to preach a message of peace and brotherhood? Or perhaps he was a revolutionary. When did he realize his mission would end in his death on a cross? Did he himself see himself as the Messiah? Did he himself see himself as both God and man? But Time Magazine wasn't the first person to ask this or the first place for this to be asked. In fact, we see this question asked in the Gospels, right? Jesus is born and people ask the question. Sometimes it's after he does something miraculous and they say, who is this man? At the end of his life, when he's standing before trial and all the uproar, Pilate wonders, who is this guy? And there's even a moment in the scripture When Jesus asked his own followers in Matthew 16, what do people say about me? And they give him answers. Some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah or Jeremiah or another one of the prophets. That's the cover all your basis answer. And then Jesus turns to them. You remember this, right? And he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter always wanted to volunteer information quickly says you are the messiah the son of the living god 
Those same questions are still being asked today. And if you ask me, who do men say that Jesus is? There are all kinds of answers out there. There are some that say he's just a great man. H.G. Wells wrote a um, a book about the ten greatest men in history, and Jesus was number one on that list. But he didn't give him more than just being a great man. Some say he's a great teacher. That he was one of the top teachers that ever lived. That he was able to say things the way nobody else could. Some say he was an ultimate philosopher. Or there are those in the New Age movement that say he must have been a mystic medium. Other world religions claim that he was a prophet or a man in tune with God. And while that question is important, who do people say that this child in the manger is? The most important question that you must answer in your life is, who do you say that this child is in the manger? We got one apostle's answer to that when Jesus asked the question and Peter responded as if speaking for the whole group. John chapter 1 begins to tell us the answer of another apostle, the beloved disciple. Let me just say this before we read that, that this prologue is the foyer into the rest of the gospel. That what is covered in John chapter 1 is both an invitation into John's description of who Jesus is and is a beautiful picture of Jesus. In fact, I've got a graphic, Josh, I may have gotten it out of order, but... There it is. And you, you can't see this really well, maybe. Maybe some of you can read this. It's a lot of stuff. But here's what's interesting is this follows on the left. It is the exact order that it comes in John chapter 1. You can see here 1 and 2, 4, 4, 5, 9, 11. And then in the gospel where John picks that thing back up. And so things like the preexistence of Jesus, that in him was life, in him was light. Light and life are major themes. That the light was rejected by the darkness, yet not quenched. It didn't overcome it. That he is the light coming into the world. That Christ was not received by his own. That he was being born to God and not of the flesh. That we would see his glory. That he was the one and only son. The truth is in Jesus and no one has seen God except for one who comes from God's side. And what happens is John will say it in here and then in the gospel he will flesh out what that means. When I was a senior in high school, my... uh, AP English teacher, Miss Suzanne Edwards, told us at the beginning of the year that the purpose of that class was to do two things. AP English is the class where at the end of the class you take a test, and if you make a certain score on the test, then you get college credit for it as a high school student. And she said, my goals for you are two ways. First of all, that you'll make a five on the AP exam, and now I have to take this in college. She said, my first goal is to save your mom and daddy money which is why mama and daddy made lots of people take that class, right? And she says, my second goal is to teach you how to write so you never have to worry about writing again in your life. Those are pretty big goals. And here's the thing. I remember when I sit down to write a sermon, when I sit down to write an article, I remember the principles Miss Edwards taught me every time. And you know what her first principle was? That the way you write is you tell people what you're going to tell them and then you tell them. And what John does is he tells us what he's going to tell us, and then he tells us. And John chapter 1 is that. And in the midst of that, he writes one of the most beautiful 
pieces of literature in history. John 1, verse 1 through 5 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And all things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Now, we're going to spend the entire next four weeks in this passage of John chapter 1, all the way down to verse 18. So we're not going to give all of it away at the beginning. We're just going to spend today in the first five verses And yet the amount of theology and information about what child is this in the manger lay is overwhelming. Four things that we see from this passage. And the first thing is this. Jesus is eternally God. The key word there on this particular one is the word eternal. John starts this entire book, this entire prologue, his description of who Jesus is, his answer of who Jesus is. In fact, he tells us at the end of the book that the whole reason he wrote the book was that he could have given you lots of more material, but he chose this material in particular that you might believe in Jesus as the Son of God, that this is his proof for who Jesus is. And he starts the whole thing with three words that would ring in the ears of any Israelite Anyone in that day who had ever read the first five books of the Old Testament, he says, in the beginning. Now, when you hear in the beginning, what do you immediately think of? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, because the beginning is a good place to start. And so when he says to them, in the beginning, Genesis 1, verse 1. it's It's a topic that's still relevant today. In fact... When I just checked Twitter this morning, not intending to have anything about the sermon on there, just getting on, see if there's any news going, got on Twitter this morning, one of the top ten trending topics in the United States was Adam and Eve because of a debate that started in Jewish scholarship that has filtered over to Twitter. Now, I didn't click on it because I'm always scared about why stuff like that's trending on Twitter. But I just was shocked that I was thinking about the beginning of it all. They're in the beginning. And so he starts this by saying in the beginning. And he uses a Greek word, which is arche, which means origin or absolute point of beginning. It's the same word, by the way, that Mark will use to start his gospel. But Mark says the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And John, basically, writing after Mark, would have known Mark's writing. John, I think, is saying, Mark told you about the beginning of the ministry. Let me tell you about the beginning. Of it all. Same word that Mark uses. It's just taken a little farther back. And we've gotten so used to saying this that many of you could quote it in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. But the profound statement that is there is that in the beginning something already existed. You understand what beginning means, right? It's start. Do you know some, what they call someone who starts a race before the race starts? They call somebody a cheater. Like if you're running a marathon and they start a race, right? And somebody's already started the race before the race starts, that's not good. Now, I'm not saying Jesus, don't, don't walk out here and say, Pastor said Jesus was a cheater. 
But what I'm saying is, nothing begins before the beginning. Except Jesus. Except God. Now, how do we know we're talking about Jesus? Well, the phrase there is the word. Now, in their language, the word meant all kinds of stuff. It was not a foreign concept. It was a word that would have been used by multiple people in multiple ways. The Stoics of their day called the word the rational principle by which everything else exists. It was the essence of the rational human soul. Philo, who was a Jewish philosopher taking from Plato, talked about the word of God as the ideal world that we, that we want to obtain, but that we live in the reality of this world. That it is like the heaven-like place. That is the word of God. In their day, the word logos, this word, would have meant science or reason. And the real background, regardless of what the Greek background is, is the word of God for Old Testament understanding, where those things connected with the powerful activity of God in creation and revelation and deliverance. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord, deliverance was given. By the word of the Lord, judgment came. By the word of God, people were healed of sickness. By the word of God, people were rescued from the grave. And so when he picks it up in John chapter 1 and says the word, they would have thought about the activity of God in deliverance, in salvation, in revelation, in creation. And so what John is saying, in the beginning was Jesus who was part of and around with And using and being a part of and there in creation, he's there in revelation and he's there in deliverance. And what the understanding is coming forward in this when it says in and the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. That's a couple of weeks away for us that he dwelt among us is that the powerful activity of God in creation and revelation and deliverance came and lived among us and started a new creation that would bring a new revelation about who God is and that would bring a new deliverance, a new covenant for his people. In the beginning was the word. The divine, powerful self-expression and creation and revelation and deliverance. It's in the imperfect tense, which means it has been going on. It has been there all along. In the beginning, before there was any earth, sun, moon, or stars, Jesus was there. Beyond the confines of time, dwelling in a timeless dimension. Before, before was Jesus. One of the things that always happens when we gather for Thanksgiving and we got together as a family, uh, at least part of us, for the first time in two years, uh, both in Jackson and then with my family in Dyersburg. One of the things that always happens is old pictures end up coming out or stories get told. And one of the things that always happens is that one of the kids will say, well, that was before I was born. Right. All of us in this room have a before I was born. Right. The world existed before us. It will exist after us. But when it comes to Jesus, there is no before Jesus or after Jesus. He is. When I can't quite grasp something, one of the authors that I go to is a guy named A.W. Tozer. And what happens is I go and read him and I walk away more confused than when I started. But I saw this quote from him about the eternality of God. 
God lives in everlasting now. He has no past and no future. When time words occur in the scriptures, they refer to our time, not his. But since God is uncreated, he is not himself affected by the succession of consecutive changes we call time. God dwells in eternity. Time dwells in God. He has already lived our tomorrows as he has lived all of our yesterdays. Jesus, the child in the manger, one of the most miraculous things that happened in that birth is that the eternal stepped into time. You realize that Jesus, before coming as a child, didn't age. He doesn't age now. There will be a day when those of us that are followers of Jesus find ourselves in the heavenly places when we will not age. And all of God's people said, Amen. We will not wake up with mysterious aches that we don't know where they came from. Our vision will not deter over time. And yet he, for us, stepped into the limitation of time for a specific moment in history. Jesus is eternally God. Second thing we see in this passage, Jesus is essentially God. What I mean by that is not he's like God. Sometimes we say it's essentially the same. That's not what I mean. What I mean here is at his essence, he is completely 100% God. He is of the same quality and character of God. And everything that can be said about God the Father can be said about Jesus. You cannot think of an attribute of God. Holy, God is holy, Jesus is holy. God is loving, Jesus is loving. God is pure, Jesus is pure. God is righteous, Jesus is righteous. Whatever attribute of God you can think of, Jesus is that. And there is no attribute which God the Father has that Jesus the Son, God, does not. Because they are God. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, as the old hymn states. Now, people say, can you explain that? Not at all. And I've seen all attempts to do that about name titles and positions in a family and different parts of an egg got used. And none of them come close because if they were... If we could understand the mystery of the Trinity of God, we would somehow have the upper hand on who God is, and that is impossible. And while it's a sticking point for many people that Jesus is God and God in three persons, one in three, three in one, it is plain in Scripture that this is true. John MacArthur says, confusion about the deity of Christ is inexcusable. Because the biblical teaching regarding it is clear and unmistakable. Jesus is the pre-existent word who enjoys full face-to-face communion and divine life with the Father and is himself God. 
What John is saying is the word existed before, before, before the beginning of the word. The word existed was with God and is God. Now, here's why that's important. John's about to write 21 chapters about Jesus. And in the midst of that, he wants us to understand that if Jesus did it, if Jesus said it, then God did it and God said it. The deeds and the words of Jesus are the deeds and the words of God. Jesus would tell his disciples this. They would say, show us the Father. And how did he respond to that? He said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And he wants us to read the Gospel of John in light of that. As I've been praying through and thinking about the next few months of preaching and where we're going as a church on this moment on Sunday mornings. I'm really excited about the series of messages. As a pastor, I have to be thinking ahead about this kind of stuff and praying and asking God for direction. And right now, where God is leading is that leading up to Easter this year, we're going to be in the book of John for the signs of Jesus being God that are in there. The seven signs that Jesus gives in the gospel of John of his deity and that he is the chosen one. And as we read those, as we look at that, the Apostle John is saying, every time you read it, understand that what Jesus says and what Jesus does, God is saying and God is doing. Third thing we see in this passage is not only is is Jesus eternally God and essentially God, he is creator God. It starts back again what we had. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now this is transitioning there from the, I want you to understand he existed in eternity before time began. But I want you to also, as John will tell us here, to understand that he existed at creation and was vital in it. All things, verse 3. What does the word all mean? All means all. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. All things created by him, through him. I'm amazed at the world in which we live in. But I'm even more amazed when you think about the telescope that tells us that what we can see or should be able to see are that about every galaxy has a hundred billion stars. And there are a hundred million galaxies that we can kind of figure out. A hundred million times a hundred billion is a one with a lot of zeros. And I don't know what you call it. And it says in scripture that Jesus spoke and they came into being. It's also just as amazing if you take your microscope out and you look at the atoms that make up all of life and you see how intricate they are. I read an article just the other day, um, a dumbed down version of a scientific article that basically said the deeper they dive into the minuscule parts of the atom, the less they understand how everything works. 
What's amazing to me is not just that he is creator God, because Colossians would tell us not only did he create it, but he sustains it. You know how hard it is for me to keep two things going at once? If I'm good, maybe three or four things. I can multitask with four things. But what about billions of stars and galaxies and humans that you're sustaining at all times? He is a phenomenal creator, God. So you think about those three things, and then we've got one more. Eternally God, essentially God, creator God. And then the last thing we see in this passage is this. And he came to bring life and light. The eternal God who created all things stepped out of eternity, self-limited some of his characteristics of deity, into the creation that he did in order to bring life and light. Verse 4 says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Life here literally means that he brought salvation. Those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ were dead in our sins without him, hopeless without him, and yet he brought us life. Light in the darkness here is the reality of that pinprick of light that started as a small beam has grown into a full-scale spotlight as he has revealed the darkness and the light lighted our way. Eternal, essential creator God stepped into time and his creation for you and for me. Not in the form of a victorious warrior, but in the body of a helpless child. One of the greatest paradoxes of all time, that the deity of Christ was found in the body of a baby. As we approach this particular December, this particular Christmas, may we approach it realizing that what child is this? It is the eternal God who created it all, who came for you and for me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, when we think about the majesty and the glory of who you are, the magnificence of your greatness, we pray, Lord, that we would be reminded again of how important it is just to give praise and honor to you in the midst of it all. To give thanks and to be in awe of the glory that you display. I pray in this moment if there are those in this room that have not accepted you as their Savior, if there are those watching online that have not accepted you as our, as our Savior, Lord, that today would be the day when they realize their need for it. 
Lord, I don't pray that we would understand your eternality or the essence of who you are, Lord. But I pray that we would just appreciate it and give glory for it to your name and declare it in this world that is in need of you and believe it in our soul. And for those that haven't accepted you in this room and that are listening online, I pray, Lord, that you would use the reality of your greatness and your goodness to remind them of their need for you. And that they would say, today is the day that I give my life to Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.